You learning the word? All right. All of you that are going with Cheryl into the women's discipleship class, head back. God bless you. Amen. Give them a hand as they go. That's a good class. Good class. How many of you are ready to get into Philippians? You ready to learn Philippians? All right. We're going to look at this and we're going to pray together first and ask God to bless us. You know, I love the word. I love the Word of God. I study it, read it. I hate to say study it because it's not work. I read it, soak my mind in it all the time. And let me tell you why I want us to learn it, why we're not just harping on one or two verses endlessly. Because as you know the Word of God, you're going to be more liable to have victory over the devil, more able to have victory over sin, temptation, the world, the flesh, the less you know of the word, the more apt you are to be deceived, to be beat around by the enemy. And we don't want that. Jesus said, thy word is truth. And the Bible says all kinds of things about the scriptures, that it renews your mind, that it illumines your path. His word is a light to our feet, a lamp to, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. The word of God is good. And as we go through Philippians, we're going to learn about joy. Anybody here want more joy? It, this is the Christian's Guide to Joy, and so we're going to look at it tonight. I'm going to believe God just to pour joy on you in a fresh way in the next few weeks to come, that you experience joy unspeakable and filled with glory, because if you're full of joy, Jesus in you is irresistible to the lost. I'm telling you, the most irresistible Christian is one that's filled with joy. So let's pray. Father, we pray that tonight, as we begin looking at this incredible book, that you will open it up to us and renew our minds and increase our joy. Lord, we're in a battle every day in this world, and the enemy is out to steal our joy and rob our peace and sap our strength. But Lord, you are out to increase our strength, to fill us with your peace, and to let us experience your joy. And so Lord, may joy be visited upon this congregation as we go through this book. Now, will you breathe a prayer and say, Lord, increase my wisdom and increase my joy. And I receive it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, joy. All right. Let's look at it. And by the way, you have free notes tonight. How many of you did not get those notes? Well, they're free, so if you want to grab them on the way out, the introduction is free, and I would get it and keep it. And if you want those notes every week, you can get them, and at the end, you'll have a little book on Philippians, okay? Now, of all the letters written by the Apostle Paul, Philippians is perhaps the most personal and heartwarming in nature. And uh, it's so revealing of Paul's character that Philippians has been called a window into the Apostle's own bosom. As I have taught uh, Colossians and Philippians now and many of the epistles that Paul wrote, i got to tell you, I am increasingly just blown away by this man. This Apostle Paul. Greatest Christian that ever lived, bar none, in my opinion. Not that I'm comparing him to others, I'm just comparing him to others. <laughs> Greatest Christian that ever lived. No doubt about it. Incredible man. He gets, of course, criticized by our culture who criticizes 
anything and everything that is of God. But the more you read Paul, the more you're going to find what an incredible, spirit-filled warrior for God that he was. So, I'm glad to study a book that is considered by some to be a window into the apostle's own bosom. Now, the theme of Philippians is Paul's joy in Christ. He had joy, and he was writing it from jail. Hello? How many people do you know that would be writing an epistle of joy from jail? No, we'd be writing our attorneys, right? But he's writing an epistle of joy from jail. We could have called this joy in jail. Key verse. Read it with me. For me, for to me, let's start over. Here's the key verse of Philippians. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's the key verse in Philippians. And the key word, say it with me. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Now, throughout the epistle, the repeated message is joy. Now, I I showed you below the passages that mention joy or a derivative thereof. Look at all of them. In In a little letter of four chapters, that's how many times joy is mentioned. No wonder it's called. I think it's like eight or nine, ten times. Now, in view of this, we can understand why some call this epistle Paul's hymn of joy. As we study this very short epistle, we're going to see the value this book has for us in today's culture, which does not have joy. We are in a joyless culture unless they drank something, smoked something, snorted something, or shot something to get it. I'm convinced that when people drink, do drugs, what they're looking for is what God intended for us to walk in every single day, and that's the joy of the Lord, the fullness of His Spirit. But since we're lost and disconnected, we reach out to things that are counterfeits in a desperate attempt to find what God intended for us to have through His Spirit. So what is the culture really looking for? They're looking for peace of mind. Peace of mind is something people are desperately looking for today. To find it, many are swallowing tons of tranquilizers all the time, getting hooked on them, looking for peace, looking for joy. In addition to drugs, both uh, prescription and illegal, there are tranquilizing books like the bestsellers Promising Secrets to Having Peace of Mind, which usually offered by Oprah. That's free. I just threw that out. Oprah always had those books. You read this, you'll get joy. Don't look at me so mean. I'm not shooting at anybody. I'm just saying these. Now, but such peacefulizers, we could call them, often do more harm than good. For in many ways, they fail, and especially if they teach you in a philosophy that does not lead you to Christ. All right? They fail to provide lasting peace in the face of life's harsh realities. They fail to deal with the problem of sin, which I believe is the root cause of most anxiety. Anxiety, I believe, comes from guilt. Guilt comes from sin. And we try to smoke it away, shoot it away, snort it away, drink it away. But when you come out of your high, you're still guilty. You're still feeling down. You're still depressed, still confused. There's still an empty cavity in your soul because those things are never going to do it. You will never have peace until you find your rest in Him. 
Never. But when the Holy Spirit fills you, you say, ah, home. Right? They don't provide uh, peace with God, these other options. The only true basis for lasting peace of mind. Those trusting in tranquilizers, whether books or pills, are trying to escape rather than face reality. I don't blame them. I mean, I get it, trying to escape what we're looking at in our world today. What then does all this have to do with the book of Philippians? This small book is written by a man who found true peace of mind in jail, in dire straits, in difficult circumstances. Not only that, how would you like being in jail for doing nothing wrong? And yet he had joy. He wasn't walking around talking about his rights, yelling about how his rights are being violated. He wasn't talking about how unfair life is. He wasn't talking about how he had been born under a bad sign or been dealt a bad deal. None of that. He said, you know what? Whatever happens to me circumstantially, I am going to find my peace and my joy in God because he is with me in whatever my circumstances are, period. So I have joy in jail. Even though he was imprisoned at the time, there's the verses that talk about it. Now, even though he might soon be a martyr, he had joy. He had the sword hanging over his head. At any time, they could have walked in and said, come on, this is your day. And they would have, as they finally did, decapitated him. But what did he have? He had joy while the, the sword was hanging over his head. And he was sitting in jail. He still had joy. He had the joy that comes from peace of mind and wanted to share it with others. And that's why we want to learn how this man, Paul, experienced joy in jail. Now you may not, of course you're not in a real jail, but there's so many people that are in circumstances they wish they could get out of. And you know, I've learned a long time ago, God will either change your circumstances or change you. He will. And now if He doesn't change your circumstances, there's only one option. He's going to change you. Matter of fact, I've learned that if He doesn't change your circumstances, He's out to change you. He's out to change you. So, you can either pout, sulk, complain, murmur, grumble, or learn what Paul did. He said, boy, I wish I was out preaching, building more churches, winning more souls. But since I can't, I am going to have joy and I'm going to write letters that are going to change the world for the rest of time. So here are some good reasons for studying the epistle to the, the Philippians. It reveals the nature of true peace and joy. True joy is found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 4.4 4. The peace God gives is one that surpasses understanding. You can have joy and peace in the middle of circumstances that people looking into your situation cannot understand how you could have joy. It passes understanding because it's supernatural. And Philippians 4, 6-7 tells us that joy and that peace are like a fortress that guards you. Now it reveals a man, Paul, who provides an example of what produces joy and peace. Again, the, the epistle is like a window into the apostle's own bosom. It also reveals, this book, his love for his brethren, his devotion to his Lord, his striving for perfection, or we should say maturity, his concern for the enemies of the cross. He prayed for them from jail. 
It reveals the Christ, this letter, who is the ultimate source of this joy and peace, along with the mindset of Christ, who provides this peace and joy. How did Jesus think? And we are to think the same way. We're going to be looking at that. And the exaltation of him who gives this peace and joy. Oh, it's a good book. Can you say with me, this is going to be good. Say with me, this is going to be better than I thought. It is. Now, these are some of the reasons why this epistle is so relevant for today. Do you, as we get into this, have the peace that passes understanding? Do you? The joy that comes from being on a winning team, do you have that? The joy that is in the Lord? If not, I hope you will glean the wisdom found in this epistle of joy. Grab hold of it. This is God's love note to you. Let me just quote AOL. You've got mail. And there it is. Philippians. Now, some quick background. Let's look at the background leading up to this letter. Paul arrived in Philippi, fresh from Troas, where he had just seen a vision of a man from Macedonia urging him to come over and help us. Remember that? And do you remember, he had tried to go here and tried to go there and over yonder. And every time he tried to go somewhere, it says the Holy Ghost forbade us. They were blocked at every turn. Finally, out of frustration, he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? I've tried going here and there and everywhere, and you block me and, and check me in my spirit every time I want to go just preach your gospel. What's going on? So he had a dream and he had a vision. And he saw a man saying, come over and help us. And he woke up. And so he knew exactly where he was to go. And he headed for Philippi. Now at this time in history, Europe's level of paganism was horrific. What kind of world was Paul preaching in? Well, it was filled with the gods of paganism, which were demon spirits. That's why you never have in your house a statue of an idol. Can I just throw that out free? These little Buddhas, you know, happy looking little, I wouldn't have one in my house. Because often behind these things, people don't understand, there's demon spirits that operate behind these things. And that may sound freaky to some of you, but I guarantee you it's true. And, and, and sometimes we pick up at stores little, these little statuettes and we don't realize what they are. But, but the Bible is very clear. They had a statue idol burning in the book of Acts. They got rid of these things, got them out of their house. Sometimes there's an oppression in the place you dwell and you don't know why. I'd go through the books in that house and I'd go through the statues and other things and make sure your house is clean. Now that's free. But here, watch this. Take the Greeks and their well-known mythology. All, most of us have studied some level of Greek mythology. Their gods, if you'll notice, were all man-made. And they had human and sinful dispositions, just like you and me. Zeus, the pagan thunderer of Olympus, the chief of the Greek gods. He was lustful. He was vengeful. See that picture up there? He looks mean. He was vengeful. Uh, The gods of Syria and the Orient were carnal and they were cruel. The gods of Egypt were a strange conglomerate of 
sun and serpent and cows and crocodiles and cats and dogs and beetles and birds, and they worship them? Can you imagine the confusion? The Romans to whom Paul was sent possessed a hybrid of Greek and Roman mythology. There was more gods than you could count. It was so confusing. And they would pray to different ones for different needs. And of course, none of them were there to answer them. They were talking to dumb idols and dumb statues and rock and stone and wood that couldn't answer. They didn't have ears, didn't have eyes, didn't have a mouth to speak. These false gods, quote, left man powerless against his passions and only amused him while they helped him to be unholy. Because watch this, church. You will be like what you worship. You will never go any higher than what you worship. That's why these people who worship rock bands, they never in their morality or their ethics or their life go any higher than those rock bands. They do what they do because you will be shaped and formed and molded by what you worship. That's why the Word says, they that make them, the idols, are like them. So what do you worship tonight? These people were plunged into unholy living because the gods they worshipped were unholy and sinful and carnal. There was no example of holiness, no power of redemption, no God like the God of the Bible who says of himself in Scripture, and I'm going to read to you several quotes about who God, our God, the God who sent Christ, says that he is. And I love this because our God, the God of the Bible, is the only God, the true God. Look what he says about himself. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Let that ring loud and clear. There is no Savior in Buddha. There is no Savior in Krishna. There is no Savior in Mohammed. There is no Savior in any other God than the God of the Bible. That's what he says about himself. Now watch this. Read this with me. Come on, preach to me. I am the first, and I am the last, and besides me there is no God. Let's read the next one. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. Now again, there is no God else beside me. A just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. And my favorite passage, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me who declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. I could park right there and preach the rest of the night. Because watch this. Only the real God can declare something, the end of something, before its beginning begins. And that's where you get Bible prophecy. Only a real God, the real God, can tell you what's going to happen in the future before the future starts. And that's what he says to him. God, our God, looks down and says, you know what, I see no other God beside me. There is no other God beside me. I alone am a Savior, and I'm the only one who can tell you what's going to happen before it starts. Thousands of years into the future. Revelations already tells us how this world is going to end. 
Genesis tells us how it began. Revelation, how it's going to end. Only the living God can do that. So we serve the living God, not like the Greek gods, the Roman gods, the Asiatic gods, the Egyptian gods, who were not gods. Declaring the end from the beginning. I love that. Now, this is the God Paul preached with incredible effect. This God, Paul would tell them, sent his only son to die for their sins, then to resurrect him on the third day. And this is the God they would all face in judgment if they refused to repent. And we will face that God. If you're in Christ, you will face that God and have your works tried. Your works will either be wood, hay, and stubble and be burned up, but you yourself will be saved, yet so as by fire. Let me paraphrase that. By the skin of your chinny-chin-chin. None of your works will be rewarded. But if you live for the Lord and you did His will, and people were touched for Christ through you, and you gave your life to Him and served Him, then your works will be tried at the judgment seat of Christ, and they will be gold, silver, and precious stones. And on the, at the judgment seat of Christ, rewards will be divvied out. But you won't see the great white throne judgment. If you're in Christ, that judgment <clears throat> is when the books are open. And if your name is not found in the written in the Lamb's book of life, you are thrown into the lake of fire for ages upon ages, ages without end. That's the great white throne judgment. It's fearful, it's awful, it's horrific, it's unimaginable, and it will come. Paul would tell his generation, his day, if you repent, you will be saved and kept from the judgment of God, from His wrath. If you don't repent, you will face him in judgment. We've got to get back to that kind of preaching. Now, when Paul stepped ashore at the town of Neapolis, the port of Philippi, the east was behind him and the whole west was in front of him. Nine miles from the port was the town of Philippi, which Luke called a chief city. So Philippi was a chief city in the opinion of Dr. Luke, he and his team, that is Paul and his team, journeyed there on foot, nine miles. It was no big deal to them. At every turn, the missionaries were confronted with Rome when they got there. Roman houses, Roman officials, Roman soldiers, Roman togas, Roman speech, and Roman merchants. We read of Paul's experience in Philippi in Acts 16. How was the church birthed? Well, here's how it happened. They enter into Philippi, and they first meet a small group of devout women meeting by the river for prayer on the Sabbath. He told them the story of Jesus and met with instant success. His most prominent convert was a woman named Lydia, who the Bible calls a God-fearer, a fearer of God, a woman who feared God. She was his chief convert. Lydia, we're told, sold purple fra- uh, fabrics in Philippi and seems to have been wealthy. She put her home at the disposal of Paul and his colleagues for the duration of their stay. Once she was saved, she opened up her home to them and said, "Here, you can stay here, you can eat your meals here, you can have shelter here. She immediately opened up her heart and with her heart, her home. Now, Paul next encountered, as he was preaching throughout the city, a demon-possessed slave girl 
whose owners made merchandise of her psychic abilities, which of course were satanic in nature. And you remember the story of this girl. She followed along behind the apostles and began to cry out, These men are the true representatives of the living God. And she said it over and over again. But something inside of Paul said, A right spirit is not speaking through her. You can say the right thing in the wrong spirit. There was a demon spirit in this woman that was very supernatural and allowed her to be a psychic over the lives of people and I guess give fortunes and, and a tarot card kind of thing and whatnot. And she was apparently very successful and very sought after. But the source of her success was satanic. And so, she's walking along behind them, and finally Paul got so grieved. He kept hearing the voice and, and, and kept saying, this is not of the Lord. He wheeled around and said, in the name of Jesus, come out of her. The Spirit left her, just like that. And this woman was transformed on the spot. There's power in the name of Jesus. Well, her owners took one look at her and realized... I guess they brought somebody to her for a fortune-telling session, and she couldn't do anything. And they realized the demon was gone. They were making their living off of her affliction and off of her bondage. Now, seeing that their source of income was gone, they became furious. They stirred up a huge crowd against Paul and Silas. All kinds of false accusations. They came and grabbed these two men. They whipped them across the back with a whip 39 times. This happened five times to Paul. I don't know how you lived through it because it was so bad when this happened to you. I've told you often, and I'll tell you again, this man was a great man, an incredible man, this apostle. If you had ever seen him take his shirt off and he turned his back to you, it was a road map. A road map of whip lashes where his flesh had hung down five times throughout his ministry 39 lashes with a cat of nine tails bone and metal in leather strips across his back the same whipping that jesus got once and they did this to him now if you can imagine being arrested for doing nothing wrong and then having your back whipped like this and then put in stocks where we've seen it in the movies. The, your hands are put in and locked in and your legs are put in and locked in in a very unnatural position that was cramped and painful. And, and for me, it would be very terrifying in a claustrophobic kind of way because you couldn't move. And there you were, hanging through stocks with your back on fire, not knowing what they're going to do with you. They have beaten you against Roman law. And all you did was set a woman free from demonic bondage. So there they sat in the stocks. How'd they respond? Get my lawyer. Nope. What'd they do? Well, sitting there, Paul probably said to Silas, there's nothing else we can do but sing. So they began to sing. Think about it. I often wonder, would I be singing there I hope so, but I can't say for sure. These guys had steel spines. So they began to sing. 
And they began to worship. And all of a sudden, singing some hymns turned into a major worship session. And before they knew it, suddenly there's a rumbling, a roaring, a rocking, a rolling, and an earthquake hits that prison. Can you imagine? And the Bible says those stocks came off of them. Don't tell me that praise doesn't break the power of the devil. This is what we need to learn here. Because watch, they begin to praise God. Oh, folks, that's why I tell you, if you get into trouble, don't lose your praise. Because, because all they had left was praise. And when they started praising God and worshiping God, I just picture God in heaven going, I can't take it. My kids are down there worshiping me in the stocks. Go on, Gabriel, shake that place up. The prison doors were flung open. The chains that were on the prisoners fell off of them. An earthquake would not do that. Something went in there and began to snap the chains off of them. The prisoners' chains uh, fell off. The jailer, thinking he had lost them all and he would be killed as a jailer for losing them, considered suicide until, to his astonishment, Paul said, don't do it, we're all here. They were set free, but they didn't run. So great was their trust in God. Well, when he realized they were still there, he said, what must I do to be saved? And he called on the name of the Lord, and he experienced a midnight conversion. And then it says his whole household repented with him, and a chain reaction began to move through that city. Folks, listen, when you carry the gospel, the real gospel, into a city that is dark and in bondage, and you preach the real thing under the real anointing, you're going to get real persecution. But if you hang tough and worship God and stay true and walk straight, then God breaks through on that place and chains are snapped and the prisoners are let free. And I'm telling you, that's the way revival starts. Look, this was a revival. The jailer first, then his wife and kids, and it began a chain reaction throughout the city. Before you knew it, poof, there's a church. The next morning, the magistrates pleaded with Paul and Silas to leave the city. They said, we'll leave when we want to, because you persecuted us and whipped us against Roman law. And they were terrified when he said that. So they took their time, and I like that. They went first to the house of Lydia. Lydia washed their wounds, no doubt, had a farewell meeting with the believers. And then leaving, Luke behind to do follow-up work and organize the church. Paul and Silas and Timothy left for further work in Europe. The first Western church had been taken by storm. Now, when Paul later wrote to the Philippians, he was a prisoner awaiting uh, trial in Rome. The purpose of the letter was to thank his friends for their financial support and to ask some of them to put aside their quarrels. When he wrote, he was expecting his case to come up before the Roman tribunal to which he had appealed. He was facing the greatest moment of his life. He was about to go before Caesar. It may be that by this time his confinement was stricter than before, but it did not dampen Paul's victorious Christian life. Nothing could, not the stocks, not the whip, not persecutions, not rejection. He kept his joy. Folks, are we going to need to learn that? with what this country is going through? Do we need a dose of what this man had? Oh, yeah. Come what may, he was on the winning side, and he knew it. 
His prayer was that all God's people might catch the vision of a triumphant life in Christ. If he could experience joy in his dire circumstances, anybody could and anybody should. Now when his letter was open and the congregation gathered to hear it, the whole church, I picture, leaned forward expectantly because here was a letter from the great apostle Paul himself written from prison. Hang on every word. So he begins his greeting. Philippians 1 verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and the deacons. Now as always, he identifies himself and his co-laborers as slaves. The Greek word is doulos. It is slaves. I'm Jesus' slave. He's just not my meal ticket to heaven. I'm his slave on earth. So if you had spoken Greek, you would have heard him say, we Christ slaves are writing to you. He identifies next the targets of his letter, the saints, and that means holy ones, the bishops, and that's episkopos is the Greek word, episkopos. You hear the word in there, uh, the Episcopalian church. It comes from that Greek word, episkopos. It means one who sees over or oversees and So he was addressing the elders, the spiritual overseers of that church, and the deacons. Deacons are servants over practical matters. We've got many deacons in our church and several elders in our church that help me oversee this ministry. Now in verse 2 he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul spoke his blessing over the congregation. His blessing of grace and peace may have been particularly pointed because two women in the church at Philippi could not get along. Imagine that. But it's not just the women. There's men that don't get along. But these two gals were causing so much friction that Paul, when he wrote the letter, mentions them. That is not, one, that's not the way I'd want to be in eternal Scripture. Tell Jeff and Billy Bob to quit fighting. And millions of people read that until the end of the world. No, no, no. But that's what happened here. Two prominent women. These were not nobodies. These were prominent women in the Philippian church. We're going to see when he addresses them directly later on in this series. Now, their contentious conduct was disturbing the peace, and it would take grace to restore the peace. Now, where there is grace, listen carefully, there can be no commencement of hostilities. Where there is grace, hostilities can't really even begin. But where there is peace, there can be no continuation of hostilities. What this says to me is the church is a great big house. We need to start with our own homes with this one. And think of it this way. Where there is grace, there can be no beginning of hostilities. Because there's forgiveness and long-suffering and patience and whatnot. But if hostility begins where there is peace, the war is over. God brings an end to it. Can I tell you that God wants grace and peace to rule your home? If it can rule your home, we'll come together in church filled with power, filled with joy. So when he says grace and peace be to you, he's thinking not just of the whole church, but these two gals who were fighting. Now, verses 3 to 4, 
I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making a request for you, all of you, with joy. Now, it's interesting to note that Paul often connected his memory of people in his past with thanksgiving. He said, I thank God for you. Now, he didn't do that with everybody. Paul named names if you had been troublesome to him. Remember what he said about Alexander the coppersmith? May the Lord reward him according to his work because he did me much harm. He wasn't blessing Alexander there. And if you gave him trouble, he was likely to name you in an epistle. You didn't want to be named that way. But if you blessed him, if you were a friend of his, if you were a recipient of his ministry, he would say, every time I think of you, I thank God for you. That's the way he did it. Now, if we're thankful of others, it's hard to be critical of them. Have you ever noticed that? Those of you that have some contention at home, let me give you a little experiment. Start thanking God for the people you're contending with. Start thanking God for your spouse. Start thanking God for your kids. Start thanking God for your in-laws. Or how about coworkers? Have you tried saying, Lord, thank you. I know they're ornery. Yes, they're terrible. But Lord, I just thank you that there's potential in them for you. I thank you that you can yet touch them. They're not in hell yet. Thank God for that. So Lord, I just thank you for them. And just start thanking God for them. Instead of railing at them, because that's what Paul would do. He would thank. And no doubt, Paul mentioned his habit of being thankful in hopes that others would follow his example. Paul was a thankful man. And I believe that's one of the reasons he had joy. He also prayed for them how often? Always he prayed for the Philippians. Now here's what I found. He said the same thing about the Romans, the Corinthians, the Ephesians, the Colossians, the Thessalonians, Timothy, Philemon, and others that he always prayed for them. Paul had a prayer list. And you, if you were on it, he prayed for you all the time. And what a prayer list that would have been to be on. Amen? So he never stopped praying for these people. All these churches, they were always in his prayers. Now at the end of this verse 4, we find the first mention of the keynote word, joy. He prayed for his friends and his churches, not begrudgingly, but he prayed with joy. Let me go back to it real quick. Look what he says. He says, every prayer of mine, always praying for you, making a request for you all with what, everybody? With joy. For him, prayer was not a duty. It was not something that he had to make himself do. For Paul, prayer was delight. And he had joy in praying. And when he prayed for you, he had joy as he prayed. There was joy in this man. And where did it come from? We know it didn't come from circumstances. It came from within. And that joy bubbled up in him all the time. Imagine this. In jail. Locked up. Freedom gone. He's praying, bless the Ephesians, bless the Colossians, bless the Philippians, bless Timothy, bless Philemon, bless so-and-so and so-and-so. And, -so. and as he did it, the joy welled up. This man's joy was not dependent on happenings. It flowed from within. Do you experience that? 
Do I experience that? I can say I experience it sometimes. But I'm going to be truthful with you. I don't experience it as much as I see this man experiencing it. But guess what? God's not done with me yet. And he's not finished with you yet either. So whatever level of joy you've been able to experience, guess what? It's going to increase. Some of you though, yeah, yeah, sure. It's going to increase because it's the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, 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 peace. All right. He next mentions how they had ministered to him. And we're going to close with verse 5. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. The Philippians had stood by Paul, supported him, and followed him with their prayers. They had become his partners in the gospel. They had done for him what Jonathan had done for David, as recorded in 1 Samuel 23. It says, Jonathan strengthened David's hand in God. Boy, I love that. They had let him know, we're with you, Paul, all the way. You can count on us. They had proved their friendship in a practical way with their financial support. We have a family that every few months sends us a huge check. They don't go here. As a matter of fact, they've been in this building one time. When I say a huge check, I mean substantial, five figures. They send it to the radio. And I always write them back when I get this check because it just blows me away every time it comes. And they're faithful to do it every single time, several times a year, many times a year. Here comes this huge check. And I always email or call or do something, send a card, and thank them. And the last time it happened, um, the lady emailed me, married lady with a couple of children, and they're very successful in what they do. But still, that's a big check. And she emailed me and said, listen, I want you to understand, we are with you. And... We are with this radio broadcast. And as you go on in the Philippines and you go on other places throughout the country, you can count on our check. She said that to me. I've met them in person twice. That's it. But she says every morning at 6, we're listening. And it's powerful. And I was thinking of them as I read this about Paul thanking the Philippians for standing with him. There's something when you say to a person who's, got the, who's put their hand in the plow and they're moving forward, they're plowing the field of the gospel, they're moving the gospel message through the world and they're pushing that plow and doing the work of the Lord and there's something about it when somebody says, you know what, I'm going to put my hand over your hand and we're going to push this thing together. And if you get persecuted, I'm persecuted with you. And if people walk out on you, I won't. And if the devil attacks you, they attack me. And when you succeed, I succeed. That's how this family is with us. And that's how Philippian, the Philippians were with Paul. They were loyal. Paul smiled as he thought back on his fellowship with the Philippian converts. He says, from the first day, Lydia opened her home to him. And from the first day, 
the jailer had opened his home to him, and they had been his faithful friends. Here's the summary. Let's stand together. The Philippian church was the first church plant in the western march of the gospel. It was birthed in persecution, sustained by deeply loyal Christians, and loved dearly by the Apostle Paul, its founder, who prayed for it continually and wrote this powerful letter of joy to encourage them in the faith. Now next week, we're going to deal with one of my favorite verses. He that has begun a good work in you is going to finish it. That's right. So don't miss next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you right now for your blessing. We see how this incredible church was birthed in the fire of persecution. And yet, Lord, your word prevailed. May your word prevail in the life of every person here tonight and everyone listening by media, by radio, by television. Lord, may your word prevail in them right now. In all of their struggles, the word will prevail. And we pray that, Lord, you will help us to experience joy like we've never known it. Joy like Paul knew it. Joy like Silas knew it. Joy like this early church knew it. Baptize us in joy, Lord. Now, can you just lift your hands to him and say, Lord, let me know your joy like I've never known it before. Joy unspeakable and filled with glory. Let's sing one stanza before we go. So here I am.